Welcome to Sex Spoken Here with me, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. I am a sex coach and relationship psychologist and created this show to help you solve any sexual problems, learn about all things sexy, sensual, and intimate, and create your ideal lasting relationship. In my virtual therapy room, I answer questions, interview experts, and provide tips that you can use straight away. Listen in weekly as I share key strategies to help you create a problem-free, exciting sex life. Make sure you join us to be up to date on all events and to easily access coaching at www.the-intimacy-coach.com. Welcome to my virtual therapy room. I'm Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee, and this is Sex Spoken Here. Please remember this podcast deals with adult themes, so if you don't have privacy, you might wish to put on your headphones. Today, I'm continuing my series on sexless relationships. Last week, I was joined by Dr. Zoe Shaw. If you didn't hear that one, go check it out. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Jane Gwynn. She's a best-selling author of Too Busy to Get Busy, How to Fix Your Almost Sexless Relationship, a practical book for couples who want to go deeper in their relationship, even if it's been a rocky road. She is the creator of the research-based bedroom approach to increasing pleasure and satisfaction using seven simple steps. Jane has been passionately married to her best friend, Jim, for over 30 years. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here with you. So we're talking sexless relationships. And last week, one of the things we both agreed on was there are a lot more of them than people think. That's for sure. Yes, I, the research that I've read suggests that as many as 40% of unmarried couples actually live in sexless relationships and maybe 30% of married couples. And in those cases, that would be people who are having sex fewer than six times a year. And when I say sex, I don't necessarily mean penis and vagina sex. Mm -hmm. I mean sexual connection that's engaging, empowering for both people. It's interesting you say that that as the definition because so often people don't describe their relationship as sexless because they have sex occasionally. So somehow that means, you know, it's like six times a year is enough, I guess. I don't know. You know, it's, it, it, it's fascinating to me. And I mean, anybody who's, who's looked at my bio online or who's listened to the previous podcast knows that I have lived in a sexless relationship and in the past, and it was incredibly difficult, even with all I know, even with all the work I do to actually talk about that and to bring that up. So even professionals kind of to bring it up to someone and to say, not only is this the way it is, but I don't want it to be this way. Yeah, totally. I actually had that experience myself, Lori Beth. Um, I've been married for over 30 years to Jim. We have, you know, we're honored and really delighted to be passionately in love with each other. Not to say it's always perfect, but we're in this process of sexual evolution as a couple, as we've gone through the, the experience of birthing and raising kids and adopting kids and everything that's happened along the way 
But before I married Jim, I was married for several years to another man. And I experienced a sexless relationship there. And I felt very sexually rejected by him. It was super challenging for me because I felt so unworthy and so alone. And it really drained me of so much of my self-confidence and my energy. And it's so interesting for me now as a 61-year-old woman who feels sexy to think about myself in my early 20s feeling so undesirable. It had nothing to do with my body or my appearance. It was everything about that dynamic of living in that sexless space that was so lonely and so isolating and uh, very, very painful for me as a woman. And of course, when your partner is rejecting you, no matter how you look, it takes away it takes away confidence. It, it drains self-confidence. And the idea that usually women in particular first go to that place where they say, well, there must be something wrong with me. What can I fix to make myself attractive again? Um, Absolutely. It, it's a, a horrific feeling and it, com it gets compounded day after day after day. And it's also, you know, there's almost like a code of silence. Like women don't talk to each other about this. They talk about all sorts of other things, but they don't talk about not having sex as a rule. You know, they don't say, well, my marriage is great, except, or you know, they talk if they're exploring. They'll sometimes, but yeah. this is sort of like the, a really taboo area for a lot of women. And, and of course, men as well. I mean, men don't talk about it full stop. Yes, I totally agree with you there. It is this uh, very kind of cloudy or difficult experience of having something in your life that is so off kilter and yet you can't put your finger on it. Uh, you don't know where to find help to fix it. And there's no community or tribe within which you can safely problem solve around it. At least that's the perception here in the US where I live. And I live in a, in a pretty liberal state. I live in the state of, I, I live in Oregon, which right. is you know, said to be very liberal. But it's uh, still a very secret experience of living in a sexist relationship and super painful for people I work with, for women I work with, and for their partners, whether they be same-sex partners or opposite-sex partners. And that's the other part of this is, is that we often talk about this in terms of heterosexual couples. But what I know from working with such a wide range of folks is that, you know, LGBT couples have just as many sexless relationships. The idea that people are always sexually active if they um, if they are outside of a heteronormative relationship is just untrue. And it's almost worse in those communities to bring it up. Cause you know, if you found your or identified your um, authentic sexual self, then of course you're always gonna be sexual, right? Yeah, <laughs> right, right. The idea is that if, and if you, you found that person in a heteronormative or a non-heteronormative relationship if you claim that you are in love that you have this sense of alignment with this person 
passionate alignment, sexual connection, and then things go off the rails at some point down the road, how do you start to figure out what to do about that? Or where do you find help for that? Like, wait a minute, what happened to us? We were hot. We were so juicy. We were so sexy. It was so erotic. And I mean, did I get like, am I not cute anymore? Is he not into me anymore? Does she not think I'm desirable anymore? But what happens then? How do you like reboot or reconnect with your your person when things have gone sour for you in that way? And I, I you know, I, I do think that there's this thing about aging that we don't confront. I mean, I, I have a large listenership in America as well as over here. And, um, you know, neither of our cultures deal well with aging at all. Um, and so we don't really talk about it. We don't talk about sexuality and sensuality after the age of 50 now. It used to be after the age of 40, but, you know, sometimes we talk about it for the first couple of years of the 50s. We do talk about the menopause now, but in diff this is not the area we focus on, although I focus on it. Not that many people do. Um, we don't talk about the changes that men go through the physiological changes that men go through when they hit their fifties and sixties that impact libido. Um, right. So it it, 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 there isn't really a place to get advice because we're not admitting that there's a problem. Our focus is always on youth and younger. Totally completely true. Yeah. And I, I think that our expectations are so low for sex, in the perimenopausal or postmenopausal period for women and in that same uh, period of time for men, our expectations are just absolutely at the lowest level. We have a lot of limiting beliefs about what our hormonal changes have done to us sexually that when we are tired for some very legitimate reason, we decide, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not hot anymore, I have no libido, my sex life is over because I'm postmenopausal. So all postmenopausal women have this like dried up uh, problem. They have their vagina is dried up. Their sex life is dried up. Their libido is dried up. I'm like them. I'm done. Sex is over. End of story. And there's no attempt for a lot of people to kind of look deeper and figure out how to go deeper and re re-emerge with something new it may be something a little bit different but something that will really juice up your life at that time and recreate it in a different way yeah no I agree with that so what kinds of things do you do with your couples and your individuals who come and and you uncover that this is their particular issue well, I love the topic of working with older couples around the issue of, of uh, uneven desire or a perceived change in libido or lack of libido. Um, and what we do is to use the same skills and abilities that they apply in all sorts of other areas of their life and help them to take sex apart. So I use a seven-part system, and I've used the acronym BEDROOM to facilitate that understanding. And we look for barriers in these different seven, seven parts of their sexual lives together. And then we create a path and a plan to remove those barriers. So I, I use kind of a heady 
approach to mm -hmm. an embodied practice because I find that's where people show up for me. They're kind of like all about like, I don't get it. I can't. I mean, I'm not hot. I'm not turned on. And he's got a limp dick. So, you know, it's not going to work anyway. So forget it. <laughs> and so we start with an analysis of like, where is this? Um, where are you feeling like you're most blocked sexually? And, and for many people, it's in some pretty simple areas. Like it might be in the area of the environment, which is E in my model. And they may have a problem with the space that they're in being kind of um, not a good fit for sex. I mean, it can be as simple as they've got a crummy bed and somebody has a bad back or wrist problems and they need to change beds. I mean, sometimes that can solve a problem. It's amazing that people wouldn't think of that. But because it's the big S mountain and so people are overwhelmed and it's they just, you know, dealing with it seems way too confrontational and potentially hurtful, so it just gets shelved. So we work through a process of understanding, and then I use a VIP day with my couples typically, where we spend a full day together, uh, either virtually or in my office, and they go through some very simple exercises, all fully clothed, uh, but very powerful exercises that help them to shift these barriers or to have an understanding of each other in a different way so that they can go forward and start to make changes in their in their own lives. Yeah, I tend to do intensive work as well with people because I find that um, when I can, when they're willing, because I find that the idea of co committing to spend that concerted amount of time working on the, their relationship together and um, not having the intervening things that come up during the week when you're meeting people weekly, you know, something always happens that you first have to address at the beginning of a session means that progress happens much more quickly. So it can be really valuable to do a VIP day or, or a retreat. I do a three day retreat and a five day retreat to tackle different things and it just to actually take that time and say, yeah, I'm going to dedicate this to working on this issue. And then you take the outcome of that concerted work. And of course, they build on it back in life and come and report back when they run into difficulties. Yeah, I think it's super hard to do this type of work on um, a session, a weekly session basis. I know people do it well, and I know that, that they can have some great outcomes. But I do think it's challenging because there's so much, um, there's so much of a that we have such barriers, such inner walls built up before we get there, and um, there's we really have a very limited window of hope that's open when someone's willing, when a couple's willing to like show up with that degree of vulnerability, and if there's not actually some progress made. I think that the window can slam shut really quickly and then, you know, like, okay, well, we're not like that. It's not going to happen for us. You know, that's somebody else's great outcome, but we're, we're mismatched. We're not sexually compatible. Uh, it's, I knew it wasn't going to work. Those kinds of thoughts tend to go through people's minds when they don't have enough time to really dig in. I mean, I, so think I love that. That, that kind of intensive model. I, I mean, I think that can be the case for some people. I also see people who are in fact mismatched. And that's always really challenging. Um, a lot of the folks that I see 
relationships become sexless after that initial honeymoon period. So, and I'm talking about the percentage of people that I see who have sexless relationships. A group of them come from, from where they've had this honeymoon period in their in new relationship where basically when you get together with something, someone, someone that you're very turned on by, anything they propose is going to be fun. Even if you're not really into it, it doesn't really matter, right? This is so much fun because you're really hot for this person. And so a lot of times people don't talk about what they actually like to do. So everybody makes assumptions. Well, we had a great time when we did X. This means that she must love X. And so that becomes completely integrated into the sex life. And actually, it's something that she really doesn't like to do. She just was willing and it was fun because it was early in the relationship. And so the, the, the battleground gets drawn and then they have sex less and less and less often because they've never really talked about what they want. Totally. Totally. We're mis misinformed. We've been lied to really about sex by Hollywood, the media, mm -hmm. the religious organizations, our families, uh, previous lovers. We've been lied to. And because of that, we think that it's going to be just effortless, that no conversation, no negotiation is required. And it, it's completely false. It's a completely false narrative. We watch TV, we watch Hollywood, and they have the most amazing sex in there. And they're, they all, they always orgasm simultaneously. They're, they're, they look great. The sheets are always white and beautiful. And we have no understanding of what real sex between real people is about. And it's, it makes perfect sense that we wouldn't know because we never talk about it. We never see it. And um, so of course we don't know. We have no way to know. Uh, we still don't educate either. You know, we just we just don't. We don't educate about those things. We educate about prevention of pregnancy, and we educate about prevention of disease. But we don't talk right. about pleasure. We don't talk about fun. We don't talk about the options people have or how to discover what you desire or how to communicate what you desire to your partner. We, we just don't talk about any of that, which uh, I find tremendously sad. Yep. So I like to think about sex being like gardening. And um, I happen to be very fortunate. I live in the high desert, which is you know kind of fun to me. I'm a postmenopausal woman living in the high desert, but I have a gorgeous garden. I also have a really sexy, fun, hot marriage, which uh, neither of these things happened by accident. Mm -hmm. The reason I have a gorgeous garden here in the desert is the woman who lived here before me envisioned this beautiful desert. She hired a horticulturist to help her plan it. She put in an irrigation system. She planted the correct cultivars of the different plants that are growing here. So I have this beautiful kind of English looking garden here in, in central Oregon. And when, when I think about sex and being like gardening, if sex were treated the way we treat gardening, or if gardening were treated the way we treat sex, it would go like this. In junior high, you would have a class about gardening. The class would include information about how to, uh, to grow seeds, how to propagate plants. I think I said that correctly. It would talk to you about fertilizer, about the toxins that were involved, about worms, about all the different pests. And then at the end of that semester, 
they would complete your education about gardening and no one would ever talk to you about it again. Hopefully you'd keep the notes, you could look back and, and think a little bit about that. Um, later on, you would decide that you wanted to have a garden, you'd have a home and you'd want to have a garden and you'd walk around the neighborhood and there'd be one house with this gorgeous garden. But most of the houses would be filled with, would be um, covered, their homes or their yards would be covered with weeds. There'd be tumbleweeds running down the streets, rolling down the streets in the wind. And people would be so amazed to think about how those people in that house created that gorgeous garden, but you wouldn't want to ask them because you feel so ashamed about your own yard. You put some seeds out there, nothing grows. You have no knowledge about irrigation. You don't know about the plants. You don't know what grows in your community. If we treated gardening the way we treat sex, that's what would happen. And there would never be any beautiful peonies. <laughs> I used to have peony envy because they come up with that gorgeous, that gorgeous head. We wouldn't have cone flowers. We wouldn't have hydrangeas. We wouldn't have any of that because we'd just be throwing seeds out there and wishing that they would grow. It's a good analogy. I mean, we, we certainly just don't provide the information that's needed to actually complete the tasks. Yeah. It, it's right. Just, so we just, we don't, we, we expect people to know. We expect, well, and, and then get, we expect people to be able to create something out of nothing and, um, and without any information. And um, it just is just, it just, it's folly to think that it would work easily. Of course, people have difficulties. Of course they do. I, I, I think I'd go further. It's just that we don't even teach people how to communicate about this or about feelings. So I was, um, I was doing an interview the other day and one of the things that we ended up talking about was the fact that we don't teach any emotional skills. Um, and I was asked, what, what would I do to change that? And, and I said, and how early would it have to start? And I said, it starts in kindergarten. You know, it starts when your, your child is four or five. Um, look, teach, when we teach sharing and we teach, we start to teach empathy, which is um, a crucial life skill and crucial for good sex and self-soothing, which is also a crucial life skill. These things, mostly we learn by observing adults. And so if your environment isn't a great environment, guess what? You're not going to learn it. And we don't have any backup plan in place. And then we wonder why people have so many relationship issues. We haven't taught them the emotional language they need to create intimacy and create safe and happy intimacy. So of course we have 30% of marriages being sexless and 40% of cohabitations being sexless. Yep kind of predictable right and right then we add a whole bunch of shame in there too so when you have sexual feelings and you are aroused and you have a connection with someone at some point in your life along the way maybe when you're a teen maybe some other time you're you're taught by society or you know maybe your mom comes in maybe you're not even with another person maybe you're just exploring your own body or developing your own self-pleasuring practice you have no lock on the door um, until your mother comes in and somehow scolds you and now you feel really inadequate about yourself because you've discovered this about your body and experienced pleasure 
And now you feel like you are inherently dirty because of that. So I teach my people whether they're I, I'm like I am like the door, the lock on your door, um, like promoter. I'm always encouraging friends to allow their kids to have some privacy so that they can discover their own bodies. I think if we all did that for our kids, it would go a long way in helping adults know what they want and be able how to be able to communicate what they want with a partner. Some of us don't even know what it feels like to be touched in a way that we like. We've never experienced that because we haven't even explored our own body. So we don't have any way of knowing that either. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think you know, the idea of taking shame out of the bedroom and taking shame away from from our own feelings about our bodies is huge. Um, and you think about, you know, when you look at little kids, nakedness is fun, right? There isn't that sense of there's something wrong or dirty until somebody tells them. Until yep. somebody says, no, no, that's bad or no, that's wrong. They have no sense of that. And it's horrible to watch the transformation that comes over a child. When that's, I agree. When that's the case. And it, and it doesn't do any good. Yes, it's important that um, we not be pleasuring ourselves in the street in public, right? We might be at, at, at risk of arrest. We might also be at risk from predators. So, yeah, it's important. It, it, it's definitely not a good thing for a child to be masturbating in the street or in the grocery store. But it is unnecessary to shame them in order to get them to understand that this is an activity that they should enjoy on their own. Absolutely. Uh, I completely agree. So right. what do you think are the most important things that people can do to either prevent themselves from descending into a sexless relationship long term? And I should point out, you know, there are times in people's lives where they choose to have sex only six or seven times a year. And it, it's it, either somebody's very physically ill and it's very problematic for them or, the, you know, pregnancy. Some women really don't want sexual contact during pregnancy. Some women are fine with that. So so there are times where I wouldn't want to pathologize this because relationships go through different stages. But yeah. to prevent it going there. And also to kind of recover from that as quickly as possible. What kind of tips would you give people? Yeah, oh, my little kitty's here. Sorry. Um, I well, I totally agree what you said, Lori Beth, about um, being gentle with ourselves about how sex fits into our lives at different times during the relationship. And I am all about authenticity when it comes to sex. So that it being real, that what I'm expressing sexually is authentic for me. So not faking it on any level mm -hmm. and really speaking my truth. Um, so I, I, I really push back on that. Sometimes people give this message that you have, you are duty bound as a woman or as a man to perform a certain number of times or be sexual with your partner, even if you, you know, don't want to now, that doesn't mean that there's not some flexibility that we can provide and some warming up of ourselves in preparation. If, the, if let's say I'm really distracted by something in my life and I'd like to connect, but it's not just, I'm not rushing with, I'm not surging with arousal right now. 
I can cultivate my own desire so that that becomes something that mm -hmm. we enjoy together. But um, I think that when people recognize that sex actually, or I'm speaking more to women here now, when women recognize that sex can increase their vitality, their sense of empowerment, and their success in other parts of life, that when we as people are touched sexually and non-sexually, that we actually increase our vitality. The, when, when that happens, the, the comment that I hear so often that I don't have time for sex and I'm too tired for sex, those things become a little bit quieter in, in our minds because really sex increases vitality. It increases energy. So it's almost like exercise. When, when I go to yoga, even though I may not feel like I have time, and I may be too busy and everything else in my life to really make time for yoga. But when I go to yoga and I get out of yoga, I feel better. I have more energy, more vitality, and I feel more um, empowered in everything else I'm doing. So that's one of the pieces of information I give people is to help them to um, create a, a willingness, I guess, mm -hmm. to have the conversation about how could this look. Mm -hmm. for us to add this in. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important. I, I sometimes, you know, sometimes when low libido is physiological, um, low libido does not, ex I, I, that's the other thing that I think people don't get. Low libido doesn't mean that you don't enjoy sex when you have it. Low libido means that you may not have the get up and go to start it. Yeah. And so sometimes it's like if some, just encouraging somebody to before they say no with somebody else initiating to think about it for a second try it out and see if their body will get into it because often it, it's it's amazing to me how often the body kind of goes with it and is excited and is having fun and so it becomes a great sexual experience even though if you'd asked me do you want to do this my response would have been eh you know, eh, not really. And so it's it's taking that time just to check in and that recognition that, you know, sometimes a warm up is necessary and it may have absolutely nothing to do with your partner. It may be entirely physical. It could be psychological if you're in the middle of a really stressful time. And so it's just that kind of, OK, I'm going to give this a chance. Let's let's leave space for the conversation. I like that. Yeah, totally. Now, one thing I do want to say, though, is that I have met many people um, over the years, and, and actually recently I've had this conversation quite often with women who are experiencing a lot of vaginal pain that is mm -hmm. precluding them from feeling comfortable having any kind of vaginal penetration at all. And for some women, this means that they're not having any sexual contact with their partners. For other women, they've created different kind of um, alternative sexual experiences together that are working for them. Uh, one of my favorite stories is a woman who is just a super juicy, sexy woman in the way she uh, presents herself in her life, and she has a great relationship with her husband, and she developed this very challenging sexual pain, where her, her, her vaginal pain, I should say, where she felt that anytime something entered her vagina, her vagina, even a finger, it felt like shards of glass were yep, touching raise, her skin. Yeah, the razor blade thing. 
Yep. And <clears throat> excuse me, what they ended up doing, because she uh, didn't want to do anything hormonal at that time in her life, what they ended up doing was to really beef up their 69 practice, which had always been a favorite, and they just kind of made that the main dish. And so for them, adding that mutual oral sex experience instead of penis and vagina sex, which had been something they did before, um, by changing it up, she felt like they were both satisfied. They continued to have an active sex life. They felt really aroused. They felt really erotic. And um, they, they modified it that way. Other women I've talked to have made a different choice. And for them, this has been the end of their sex life. And it's also been the end of their um, touching life of any kind with their partner. There's been no more holding of hands, no more hugging, no more kissing. So it's, it really depends on what choice the couple makes when faced with something like that. That the razor blade phenomena is something that um, women don't get told about, about menopause. That's a possibility. And it's a pretty horrible one because it's not about dryness. It's, it's, a, it's an additional issue. Um, sometimes it's corrected if you want to use HRT. Sometimes HRT on its own won't do it. Uh, but there are, in fact, quite a few natural methods of coping with this. Um, and I've had the good fortune of talking with and working with a number of women who provide alternatives. And um, so there's things like there's um, there's um, sex butter, which is a balm rather really than a lubricant. But it's a balm you can use every day and it's um, it will actually replump tissues and that can help with the pain. And there's um, a lubricant mm -hmm. called Yoni's Bliss, which is actually a water based lubricant that's got homeopathic medicine in it. And the homeopathic medicine right. is designed to combat the, that that kind of irritable sharp sharpness. Um, right. So there's there's some th physical things you can do. I always encourage people to really consider before they make this the end of everything. It is quite shocking when it happens, and having personally experienced it, it you know it it was it felt insurmountable initially. Um, yeah, it, but there are so many things that you can do, including deciding you're not going to have penetrative sex anymore um, mm -hmm. that will allow you to continue that, that contact and that sexual life together that I encourage people to actually explore. But I know lots of women, that's it for them. They're just done. It's so intense and it's so off-putting that they're just like, okay, you know what? I'm done. Right. And it also, I think the fact that, the expectations are already really low for people yeah. in this age range. So it's almost like, oh, I didn't know this is the end. And I, no one ever told me about postmenopausal sex. So this must be what everybody knew and didn't say. Yeah. Like everybody gets this, it's over, nobody does anything anymore, done. And um, I think a lot of times when that happens, there may have been a lack of communication around sex or maybe something there where the problem solving around sex didn't really exist at the level mm -hmm. where both yeah. people could kind of 
create something else out of it. Yeah, yeah. And moving through it becomes almost impossible. And a lot of men in that situation communicate that they don't want to hurt their partners. They feel bad or guilty asking for any kind of sex in that situation. And so it just becomes something that, that just gets avoided. And the longer it's avoided, of course, the worse it gets. And, and, and we end up in this position where people, sometimes without even actively choosing it, end up in this sexless relationship. So it, right. and go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, he may end up with erectile issues because the anxiety of hurting her can mm -hmm. really impact him. Yeah. So all of a sudden she's too, she's having sex pain. She's dry and he's soft and they're done. Yeah. So they, they don't eat and they have several different concerns there that haven't been addressed that might've been addressed. Yeah. And it just goes off the plate and they're just become this platonic couple and lose the vitality that they might have had going into their 60s and 70s and even 80s or even 90s, yeah. as is the case with some couples. Yeah, no, I am. Um, I point out to people that desire doesn't necessarily go and that um, I know you know, some centurions who have desire, they may not be able to get their bodies to do whatever they want them to do, but they still have desire. So there's no time frame on desire. No. One of my personal favorite stories is a friend's parents where she, my friend told me about her mother who broke a hip. And I said, oh, did she fall? And she said quietly to me, no. And I think her mom was in the mid 80s, like 85 or 86. She said, my father broke her hip while they were having intercourse. But they went on to have another, you know, five, five years of sexual activity together as a couple. So it's not impossible that we continue being sexual for many, many years. 50 is not the end of sex Thank uh, God. if we don't let it be. <laughs> So if people would like to work with you, um, where can they find you? And do you have any kind of um, events or courses or retreats coming up? Uh, yes, thank you for asking. I would love to uh, hear from members of our audience. And a great way to get in touch with me is at my website. And I bet you'll put a link up to it. I but will. It's, it's janegwyn.com spelled a little differently, G-U-Y-N is my last name. And I have a, an upcoming course that I would love to offer to our listeners right now. Uh, it's available in beta. So um, when this podcast first airs, I'll be inviting my first group of listeners. It'll be for women. It is for women. It's called The Lover's Journey. And it's a five-module course that's going to be offered over an eight-week period and it will include coaching from me in a group, very private, as well as videos where, that uh, my listeners, my mm, the women in my tribe can consume uh, from the privacy of their own home, going through, through the bedroom model and understanding, helping my listeners to understand how to create a relationship that's uh, exactly what they want right now. Mm -hmm. And the price of that course will be $497 US and includes a lot of private, uh, a lot of attention from me during that process. So I'd love to have listeners join me in that um, experience. It's going to be fantastic. So if anybody is interested, the link to the website is in the podcast notes and um, feel free, click on it and grab it. it uh, the podcast notes stay and the podcast stay evergreen 
on um, my website, theintimacycoach.com. So you can always go back and look at it as well and reconnect. Um, so thank you very much for joining me this week. It's been so much fun. It's been <laughs> one good. of my, yeah, I love talking about sex. I could talk about it for every day, all day. A super fun topic and so important for so many of us, for all of us. So important. So thank you so much, Lori Beth, for inviting me. My pleasure. And thank you all for joining me for Sex Spoken here with Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. Please write to me with suggestions for the show or any questions that you want answered at drbisbee at theintimacycoach.com. That's D-R-B-I-S-B-E-Y at the-intimacy-coach.com. Do follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and check out my YouTube channel. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Dr. Bisbee. For a free 30-minute strategy session with me, head over to HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash the dash intimacy dash coach.com and click on the button that says schedule now on my contact page. Please do leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher if you enjoyed this podcast. And I look forward to seeing you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to Sex Spoken Here with Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review here on iTunes or on Stitcher. And make sure you head over to www.the-intimacy-coach.com to subscribe for free newsletter updates to help you create and sustain an exciting trouble-free sexual life. Stay tuned for upcoming weekly episodes on all topics, sexy, sensual, and intimate. Thanks for listening.